Now on record. We are now on record. Um, let's start. You know the book. Did you start it, Doc? Let's start. Ordinarily, I would ask for prayers, but I want to get started and I have one prayer that I want to make, I think, for all of us. Um, so I'm going to hold it to just actually two prayers. Um, so, um, Michael, can you guys all come up at that table? You guys come up? Come on up. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's 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 start. Um, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of your presence with us through the day, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. Um, for your presence, for all the ways in which you hold us to you, um, particularly in the face of our weaknesses. I ask the grace for all of us, particularly in the in our efforts to take seriously our call to evangelize, to bring you to the world. Um, Peter Rezio and the Regensburg Address are both um, speaking directly um, to that call for all of us. So I ask a special grace. Um, that all of us have a greater humility and a greater courage um, to bring you to our world in our marriages, in our families, in our religious communities. Um, sometimes, no, often it's harder there because um, the disorders of our culture have so permeated our lives, our own lives. Um, it, it becomes difficult to us. So grant us that grace, please. Today I want to offer two special prayers, one for the people in Ukraine and Russia, the soldiers, the civilians who are dying needlessly. Um, I'm going to ask a risky prayer here. Now, I personally don't believe we can come to a just war, a conclusion, sorry, to the end of this war without greater risks, and that means people will die. Um, help all of us. Um, to do what we can to bring that war to an end, even though it will mean the cost of more lives. Um, wherever lives are spent, um, let it be with a grace um, on both sides. Um, straighten out the leaders um, who put the lives of so many people at risk and um, at the cost of their lives too. Today I have a special prayer. Um, I'm assuming it goes to most of our hearts. I ask for a special grace for our churches um, in the face of the protesters. Um, awful grotesque, violent things. Um, people break into the masses, um, shouting they're gonna burn the Eucharist. The desecrations that are um, thrown. Um, what to say? Um, help people stand their ground um, to not do anything to increase the violence. Um, um, to, uh, what to do? Um, to protect our churches. Um, to do everything we can to hold violence off. 
um, but protect our churches. Um, where there will be costs, hopefully not people's lives, but um, um, watch over our churches. Um, inspire um, the guardian services, but e even um, those in attendance at Mass stand up um, to bring your justice and your charity um, to these protesters. Um, let a watchful guardian spirit be present in our churches across our country um, in response to this, uh, what's happening right now. Um, um, let whatever happens be a source of inspiration and strength for people to be more careful, more protective of human life, uh, particularly um, with the unborn who have no say in these things. So, be with our country in this um, in this great crisis. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you all hear me okay off that mic? Uh, can you hear me okay? I know, Doc, but it, um, last week, last week I mentioned, you started both of these, yeah? The two recorders. Last week I mentioned this book called Teaching a, a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. It's a wonderful collection of essays. She's a, she's, uh, her background is in the sciences. She's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Just a brilliant. I'm going to pass this around just for you to look at it. You may want to buy a copy. But take a look and, and pass it around. Um, I brought it out. My wife was looking at it today and she was going to take it away from me so she could read it. Um, it's a good book, so I'll just pass it around. Those of you, um, you know, um, who are teachers or involved with the kids teaching homeschooling or now, may want to look at this because it's a good book for young people to read. She's so clear. She's just a gifted writer. So, and we were talking about that last week. What went in that question? When somebody says life is meaningless, how do you answer it? And out of nowhere, I think I think I think I said I, I can't remember how to say it, but um, here's a stone. You're going to tell me that a stone has no meaning? And that was out of nowhere, I had no plan. But my thought was if we can show people that there's a meaning to a stone, we ought to be able to do it with other things. And during the course of that discussion, this book came to mind. And also that movie that we watched together called The Partridge. Because if you remember in that movie, it turns on a stone. The young boy received that stone from his father when he was really young, and um, they lived their life in estrangement from each other. Father and son didn't talk. And at the end of the life, the, the son received the news that his father died, and he goes. It's, a, it's such an important moment because those other people who came in to bear or to prepare the body did it in such an insulting, disrespectful way, and the son was really upset. So it was a tender moment for him and his wife. It's a tearful moment, I think, um, watching this young boy who has been estranged from his father, or young man, prepare his father's body. And he opens up his hand and finds that stone. I hope I'm not misreading 
If I remember correctly, when he first had that stone, it was rough. At the end of his life, it was smoothed out. It was a way of saying, things happen even to a stone, you know. Life wears on us. Um, we can all relate to stones in that sense, I think. Anyway, I'll pass this around, okay? Teaching a stone to talk.
My claim is that all art has a musical center. And I'm trusting that everybody will remember that the work we did with Boethius, because if you remember, we haven't done this with T.S. Eliot, but T.S. Eliot's quartets, and we haven't done the quartets, right? Uh, the, major, the major motif tying all of Eliot's quartets together, we will do them. Um, Hopkins with um, Revolution and T.S. Eliot's four quartets are probably the most difficult poems in the language and the most extraordinary. We're doing the Revolution. At the center of T.S. Eliot's quartets, he, he is the major poet of the 20th century. He uses this image of the still point. We first encountered that notion in Boethius, because you remember Boethius said that time is like a circle. The closer you get to the um, periphery, the circumference, the closer you get to chaos. He called it fate, because people who identify with the circle are constantly in motion, caught up, they're trapped. And you know that the four things that entice most people are the four things that Boethius and Thomas, St. Thomas following it, were what? This is a test. What are the four? They're goods. They're good. They're natural goods. They're not evil. We're certainly not like a Protestant world or a Manichaean world who look at goods and say they're bad. These are good. What are those four goods? Power. Power. Well. Pleasure and fame. And fame reputation. Take a look at what motivates 99% of the people today, politically, particularly on political, and we'll see. And Boethius is arguing, remember, through Lady Philosophy, she's saying when Boethius is whining because he's going to die. I think Mary and I have, would have a special funds for that part of it. Lady Philosophy comes to because he's whining and saying, I'm. He's probably the greatest victim. We talk about a victim mentality today. He's probably the greatest victim to ever make his place in the pages of the word of literature except for Christ and Socrates. He's been accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's going to be executed. There, there's, it's a great injustice. So when the book starts, he's whining, complaining, and she says, stop your whining. The problem with you is you've been reading too much poetry. And she... She starts what is a process of uh, healing by making these arguments to help him recover his mind, to take him back to, it's like the Eucharist taking us back to this time to recover the sense of things. And it's, it's during that that we learn God's role in the world. And she comes to a point in argument where she says, all of us are defined by a circle. Those who are caught up in time, which she calls fate, are on the circumference moved by power, wealth, pleasure, reputation. Those are the things that drive And so long as they do, whatever happiness they give will be um, temporary, right? They won't last. That's the problem. And our, our culture's given to it. Be secure, have security, have comfort. Both of which are fine. But what happens when, if, you, if you base your whole life on any four of those goods and suddenly something happens, what do you do if you, if you vested your whole life in them? I mean, you know the answer to that. People fall apart. It's just a terrible thing. She argues that it's only when you 
turn your attention to what God is doing and give yourself to what He's doing, that you will properly order your mind and your heart, your emotions. Because most of us live with disordered emotions. We attach ourselves to these worldly things when they go bad, when we lose them, we're distraught. And she says, the closer you move to the center, a still point, a still point, the closer you move to God, the more you see things the way He does. And you know that the readings constantly in the church say, we are to make our judgments according to eternity, God's time, not our own. In fact, we have something close to that in the last week when Peter and the other disciples remember in the temple and they get chased out um, because they're defending God and they're criticizing the Jews for crucifying Him. And Peter says, um, the most important thing for us is to obey God, God's laws, not human laws. So that still point has been a central motif, a literary image, a philosophical image for everything we've done. The claim I want to make tonight, just to throw it out there for you guys to hold on to, every work of art implies it. It could be a Jane Austen novel, but remember, all, most of the poetry up to the time of Shakespeare was in, in verse. There was a meter to all of it. The modern world begins when it turns away from verse forms to narrative forms. Jane Austen is one of the most extraordinary narrative writers that I know in my mind. There's nothing lyrical, but you can almost not find a clearer writer than Jane Austen. I mean, her, her prose is just amazing. My claim is that if you, if you look at the order of her narratives, she never brings God in. It implies a center, some central unifying intuition, something that holds that whole novel together. So every work of art, every painting, every piece of music, every piece of sculpture, um, they all imply, imply a still point. Okay? One of the pieces of evidence that I want to give um, to illustrate this, and then I'll leave it, is think of any movies you've seen in the last five years. How many movies that you've watched are accompanied by a soundtrack. My notes to you when we did departure, remember I gave you the distinction between mimesis and diegesis? Mimesis is imitating. You know, it's drama. You just imitate. People are speaking in their own voices. So Achilles is speaking in his voice. Homer is taking on Achilles' voice, and we have Achilles. But there are times in the narrative when Homer is speaking in his own voice. He's saying something himself. In a Jane Austen novel, you've got Jane Austen, a narrator, narrative, a narrator, describing something, and then a character will speak in that character's own voice. When a character speaks in his own voice, that's the Mises. It's an imitation of something else. When the narrator speaks in his own voice, that's diegesis. Blake, 
Blake was speaking in his own voice, and, and both of them were putting into music. But as the person expressing his own voice, his own feelings, his own thoughts, he's not imitating another speaker, the way that Shakespeare would use great Ambrano writer, but Beth is speaking in his own voice for a fellow okay? Every time you watch a movie, the movie itself is a piece of mimesis. It's imitating people doing what they do, yeah? How do we explain the musical soundtrack? That musical soundtrack is like the soul of that piece. So if we go back to Departures, that movie song, it's all about this young man losing his job and going home and trying to save face. You know that every, almost every scene that took place was accompanied to music. That music is like a personal expression of the soul of that story. You feel it. Remember the oboe, or, you know? So every time we watch a movie and there's a soundtrack, it's like that soundtrack is taking us to that personal inner voice that sometimes we can't hear. Is everybody following me? So we're not just getting an imitation of a story in a movie, whatever the movie is. We're hearing this music, and the music is taking us to that inner personal feeling that's a part of everything that goes on in the world. So every work of art implies a still one. We got that from Boethius, we got it from Dante. If you remember when we did Dante, when Dante gets to the back of the universe, outside of time and space, he looks back at the center of the universe and he sees a still point moving so fast it's standing still. That's God in his time interpenetrating our time. So, and the modern world has no notion of that. Okay? Let me stop. Is that clear? Every work of art implies this inner movement. It takes us to deeper emotions. Every single lyric we've read, the wind cover, supernatural love about that four-year-old girl. You know, I mean, you <laughs> I'm embarrassed. You know that it's hard for me to get through that one without breaking up. I mean, it's just every piece of poetry carries an emotional center. We feel what's going on. The poet helps us to feel something. If it's a good poet, he's helping us to order our emotions. What's the great task we face? It's going to come to this topic tonight about our sexuality. The great struggle we face, all of us, is to learn to order our emotions. We say to order coordinate emotions to make them lawful. Because most of the time, C.S. Eliot once said, and I was so grateful that he did because it was a description of my own emotions, he said, when he looks inside himself, all he sees is a riot of fears and lusts. That's T.S. Eliot. To me, it was an exact expression when I face every day of my own soul. So it's like a riot of emotions. How do we get them under control? What do we do? It's going to go to this main point tonight. But, but I don't want to lose this because so much of what we've been doing makes a place for literature, for poetry. Okay? All art implies a still point this musical center. That still point is the inter intersection between our world and us. We're time, we're time, and the timeless. We're sequence and stillness in eternity meet. It's where God's timeless world intersects with time. That moment. So when we feel joy or, you know, it's like we're connected with that moment. How do we 
how else can we describe those moments when we're both so overwhelmed with joy that we tear up? So, number one, that's the positive. Here's the other thing related to that that I wanted to stress. It's 
our misperception of things. We don't see things right. We're too caught in the world and its grievances. Is everybody following me? That's James. Here's Romans. This is Paul. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're being tried to, to see whether our faith is real or not. Anybody, I mean, who can't manage if we're not tested, everything's going the way we want. But let something go against the way we want, when it's still how do we do? What's our spirit? How do we answer it? Corinthians. But for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. That is, when he empties himself, um, he finds his strength in Christ and troubles, persecutions. You know that I can go on and on, right? They're Paul's letters. And he almost can't read a letter of his without saying takes the joy. In fact, it's a stunning thing. <laughs> if there was ever a man who loved Christ, it was Paul. And Paul said, I want to be with Christ. But more than wanting to be with him in fleeing the world, I want to stay. I want to stay here to help people. Um, my goodness. So he took a joy I mean, there was a, a, a reason for what he was doing, joy, because there was some chance that what he offered could help other people get to Christ. Um, Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Colossians, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. One of the ironies of that passage from Colossians for me, almost all Protestants say, that act is over. It's done. You don't need to take communion. Once you've done it, it's over. The fact that we keep going to communion is a sign somehow of our failures. We haven't fully accepted Christ. Is everybody following? I think that's not an uncommon thing to hear. It's over. It's done. It's complete. What are you stewing about? Why are you, why are you making such a big deal about the Eucharist? Paul, and Paul is right at the center of the whole Protestant world. I mean, his, their way of reading the faith, you know, uh, issue. Here's Paul again, I'll just read it and leave with that. Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That is, the crucifixion continues in the world for anybody who takes Christ seriously. Our daily life will present us with crucifying trials, moments when we're going to be, we're going to have to suffer. So, everything in our church calls us to the cross, but everything in our church also says, take a joy, take a joy, um, you're with Christ. So as we look at these disorders, and one of the things I just would like to leave everybody with is even though it, it seems to be a negative cast, we're focusing on the negative things in the world, 
that we should take some joy because we're learning to see there's a light that can answer them. Okay? Um, John Paul is saying, faith and reason, the higher one is faith. But it's important for us to get our heads straight so we can lead people to a faith. If we can't answer these disorders, we're leading people there and we're leaving ourselves there in those same disorders. When the whole church is called us out, one of the things the church says is grace, grace calls us to virtue. We should be practicing a virtue. I'm trusting, I only have to look at myself, but I'm, you know, most of us are not young here. That all of us know how hard it is to be virtuous, to practice self-discipline. So, so, one, all things imply, all things imply a still point. All works of art imply a still point. There's a joy um, at the center of everything. Do we see it? Is it something we live, even when we're facing real hardships? Um, remember Dostoevsky said, I quoted this last week in, in the Brothers Karamazov. I hope, I hope we get to that. The Brothers Karamazov, I think it's Ivan who says, um, if God's dead, if God's dead and he is to the modern mind, science, can I make a point? How are they going to explain God? If God is dead, Everything's permissible. And that that's the condition that leads to all the disorders that we've been looking at for the last two weeks. Remember that. If God's dead, everything's permissible. Then you've got this whole strew of things. Can we answer them? Can we draw on our powers of reason and good hearts to answer these disorders? Okay. Um, this is a pagan. Um, there are those passages in the Bible, I can't, I think one of them may be Psalm 37. I think there's something in Proverbs too. You remember those passages, of, I, think they're, I think they're in Proverbs, I can't remember or the Psalms, where they're saying, let's, um, um, let's kill the just righteous man. Let's try him. The Job story starts with God allowing Satan. That's how the Job story starts. God allowing Satan to test us. He says, go ahead. Because Satan's convinced that um, Job won't withstand his trials. So one of the centerpieces of the Old Testament is this belief that we will always be tested. God gives, God gives Satan permission to try him. This is Plato. This is a pagan. I, I believe Plato had to read some passages. In the Old Testament, but here. If it isn't clear, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is encourage us and the work we have. This is Plato in the Republic. The central question um, the people are presenting to Socrates in the Republic is what's justice? That's why I call it when we talk about it what's justice? It's a founding work. For the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, uh, and um, Genesis and um, Exodus, those are the founding works of Western civilization and our faith. This is Plato. They're asking him what justice is, and at one point Socrates says this. 
With two such commands no longer hard, I suppose, to complete the speech by a description of the kind of life that awaits each, it must be told, because one of them is making the argument, justice is, I believe we've gone through this before, justice is um, what the stronger make just by their strength. So whatever it is the stronger make right in the presence of the weak becomes just. So, so whoever has a majority result in Congress can make whatever laws they want. They can make laws supporting slavery. We did that. We can make laws supporting abortion. Whatever the strong, whatever they do um, to make things a certain way is justice. That's one of the arguments. Plato has to answer that. And the Republic is partly an attempt to answer that position because it's still modern. Whoever has the power can make whatever laws they want. That's just. So you, Socrates is holding two images. The one of the stronger over the weaker making whatever laws they want, and real justice. Okay? And if it's somewhat rustically told, don't suppose that it's I who speak Socrates, but rather those who praise injustice ahead of justice. Some people are going to say. We, um, we did Lear in this group, right? Remember, remember we talked about that one um, Cornwall, blinded Gloucester, he took out his eyes and he said, I, I should take you in front of a court of law, but I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm going to do this. This is what's going to be justice. Goddard did the same thing. Their will, because they have the power to do things, established justice. Shakespeare's dealing with that in Lear. And you saw how, I mean, how painfully tragic that was. They'll say that the just man who has such a disposition will be whipped, he'll be racked, he'll be bound, he'll have both his eyes burned out, and at the end, when he has undergone every sort of evil, he'll be crucified. And know that one shouldn't wish to be, but to seem to be just. Think about that. The guy who's being crucified, whipped, would wish that he would seem to be just, so he would escape all of that, and actually be just. Because if he's just, people are going to crucify him. Why is that so? <clears throat> this play was a great argument. It leads right to the crucifixion. Why did Christ have to go to a cross? One of the reasons is that according to the Jewish law, somebody could follow the law and say, look how good I am. I've done this, 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 this. Look how good I am. What Plato is saying ahead of Christ and what Christ will make clear is that that's not so. There are depths of wrong in you, even when you're abiding the law that you don't even see. It's only when all of those things will be taken away, when all seeing, all seeing is taken away, that we will know what real justice is. So it's only when all seeing is gone, we'll find out who the just man is. Who's the ultimate just man? Christ. All seeing on. Socrates talks more than you can quit going on. Okay. Is that clear? Okay. Is it clear? So, um, the great challenge for all of us is to get past seeing. And very often we won't know what that is until we've lost everything. That's why Paul does what he does. He's saying, I'm taking a set so how is this world? He says he counts as nothing. 
all that he has. In other words, I count as nothing. It's only when he has nothing that he has the fullness of things because it's then he's with Christ. So how often do we let seeming get in the way? Having things, showing how good we are, this is our life. If we've been called to evangelize, um, <laughs> we're, um, we're going into a sheep slaughter, and it's all the images of Christ losing it. So um, I, I'm saying this as partly as a way of saying the task of evangelizing is daunting. I mean, we've been looking at negative things now for three weeks. My whole purpose tonight is to try to remind everyone this may seem really hard, but it's... Um, remember, there's another way of seeing it. We shouldn't decide it. Let me stop with that. I want to I wanna read um, from um, Hopkins' window for a moment, but I want to I wanna get to um, the beginning of um, Regensburg and then take up our question. Let me stop. Any comments on these opening reflections on what we're doing and I don't know if I'm just trying to take something negative out of our work because we've been focused on it. I'm so glad to see you guys. One, I mean, all of you getting really feisty the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, you didn't want to leave, and last week, when I said we've got to stop, another howl went out. All I can say is I, I wish you guys were present when the protesters come into it. I would love to see you guys. Standing in line. Anyway, any, go ahead. Go ahead. Come on. I was just uh, trying to understand the, the musicality of every work of art and the still point. Yeah. Is that an objective still point, or is it depending who reads it, where they find the musicality in that particular work of art? Is it subjective, or is it objective? Uh, good question. Uh, I answer that. The fact that you put it that way. It's both, I mean, in the truest sense, it's both. It, and let me take the objective part first because you know that the assumption of science is that um, science gives us objective truth, let's say. So if you look at, this is going to be too abstract, if you look at some of the moderns, like Einstein or Borg or Heisenberg or some of the physicists. Um, they don't look at things the way, um, what's the name of that doctor, Doc, the 19th century, who looked at the world in terms of clockwork? Um, help me, Bob. <laughs> Doc, what's that, that dermatologist's name? Oh, huh? yeah. The divine clockmaker? Yeah, who's the, 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 it's the, 18th, 19th century. Um, anyway, the, the, the universe is a machine, seen in terms of a machine, with everything mechanical. So his understanding of physics was in mechanistic terms. The moderns, um, Einstein and Borg and um, Heisenberg and men like that, talk about energy, and this is going to be I don't know, because I want to do justice to your question. Stop asking questions like that. Um, Never mind. Um, too late. <laughs> um, they say that 
matter is more like a potentiality than an actual, like a bowl or a, a billiard ball on a table where one thing, one ball hits another. And they're talking about in terms of potentiality, not an actual hit. So they're actually getting close to Aristotle and Thomas who are talking about the still point as something there, but not tangible. You can't touch it. So, um, in, from one perspective, it's absolutely objective, it's real, it's there, it's there. Can science get to it? No, they can't. It's because science is too governed by a, a belief that matter is the only principle, that, and that's the basis of what they do. So there's no way to show that objectively, but it's there, that's Boethius' argument. That still point is that intersection between our world and eternity. That's why it's called a still point in the middle of the circle that's turning. But it also means that every great work of art, every really good work of art, that reveals something in the beauty and order in which it's presented, like a Shakespeare play or, sorry. Um, hold on. No, it's, um, Let's say, or Hopkins, Windhover, 
because we're going to do that. We've got a thing passing in time. Hopkins is talking about the shipwreck, Shakespeare's King Lear. This is the story. Lear divides his kingdom, things fall apart. We're in the human order of time, in sequence, one thing following another. But in the form he gives it, the beauty with which he captures that, so we're left with this sense of beauty and order, even in a tragedy, we've got a transcendent quality in a tangible work of art. So when you look at a painting or hear a Bach, let's say a Bach um, fugue or something, it's moving through time, but we, we feel, our mind becomes aware of, it's something transcendent caught in time. That's why we come away saying, that was extraordinary, that was beautiful. When we watch the movie Departures, I mean, I think everybody came out of that saying, what a wonderful movie. You know, it was a, how do you explain that wonder? The unity, the beauty, all in one word. Every detail, even though it's, who, who knew where it was going when we were in the middle of it? Did we know how it was going to end? But the stone, no, we didn't. But when it came to them, everybody said, how fitting. That was absolutely right. It all, it all fitted. It was unified. There's this extraordinary beauty. Good works of art, good, good essays. You know, any, good, any good thing that does that is, um, is an illustration of, you know, it's both transcendent and earthly, objective, subjective. Let me stop with that, okay, because I want to... He says, yes, 
at that lightning in the last rod when he, when he takes orders. You made all of this. How can you allow something like this to happen? Remember four, stanza four ends. Um, I steady as a water in a well to a poise to a pain, but a rope with always all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the bowl of vein of the gospel proper, a pressure, a principle, Christ's gift. It's like at the center of everything we've been given is a cross. But, um, Christ, God, allows these things to happen to help make us better. I'm going to say that again. God allows all of this to make us better. Can you all imagine if we didn't have God and we got spoiled by money and power and wealth? Because those are the driving ideals of America. When you have all this wealth and you finally get your mansion and you have all your security, you'll be happy. Imagine how it would be. Just, it, just, it shakes me sometimes to picture how I would be if that were my life. Actually scares me. Anyway, he's saying God allows this to make us better. So, stanza six. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, if you know this, swings the stroke dealt. Stroke and a stress that stars and storms deliver, that guilt is hushed by, hearts are flushed by and melt, but it rides time like a riding river, and here the faithful waver, the faithless fable endless. Because it's, um, and he knows what he's saying is, he's so aware of his own weakness. He's taken orders, he loves Christ, and yet he can almost not do anything without feeling his weakness coming into his life, showing itself everywhere. It dates from the day of, go of his going to Galilee, warm laid grave of a womb like grave, manger, maiden's knee, the dense and the driven passion, and frightful sweat. This little baby, this little baby who can't feed himself, who has to be fed at his mother's breast, was the creator of the entire universe. It's one of the great paradoxes of our faith. That creator who was great enough to make a universe as great as ours, took on a human form and became a baby who could not even feed himself. So it starts with that manger scene, and it takes him to the sweat of the Passion of the Cross in Calvary. There is swelling to be, though felt before, though in a high flood yet, what none would have known of, only the heart being the heart at bay. It's, it's something we take for granted until we suffer, and in those moments then we know, um, we get some sense of what happened on the cross. Um, being hard at bay is out with the foe we last for the best or worst world word last. How a lush cap, flush cap, slew, will, mouth to flesh birth, like something that we, like a great or a plum, you know, we put it in the mouth and it suddenly gushes and all this stuff out of it. Gush, flush the man. So just like that, um, what I, was a the same with us, that in those moments, moments of trial, something gushes in. It's like that four-year-old girl. She pricked her finger and said, Daddy, Daddy, four-year-old girl. 
uh, in these moments of suffering, it's like that blush and flush that we share with Christ on the cross. We last to the best or worst, we're last how lush cap, flush cap slew, will now to the flesh burst, gush, flush the man, the being with it sour or sweet, brim in a flash full, hither then last or first, to hero of Calvary, Christ's feet. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. How many men want to go there? Be adored among men, God, three-numbered form, ring thy rebel, dogged and den. It's like a wolf trapped in a den. He's identifying with somebody caught. Man's malice with wrecking and storm. Beyond saying sweet, past telling of tongue, thou art lightning and love. I found it a winter and warm. Father and father of heart, thou hast run. As thy dark descending and most heart merciful then. With an anvil ding, you know that it's a forger, I mean, hammering a piece of metal out to make it better. That's what God is doing with us. With an anvil ding, with fire in him, forge thy will, or rather, rather than stealing as spring through him, melt him, but master him still, whether at once has once had a crash fall, or has Austin a lingering out sweet skill, make mercy in all of us, out of us all, mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. God wants us to learn to master ourselves. We can't do it, I think, without letting everything go to the cross, because until we do, most of that stuff masters us. So, um, it'll lead to the second part, and you get to the storm of the women, but the opening is really, you've heard it, it it's his acknowledging God, the place that Christ has in his life, the stressing, the struggling, all that it's helping to see, um, um, the racking anguish sometimes of having to deal with his own weakness, um, and still trusting um, that God knows exactly what he's allowing. Okay, we'll, we'll stay with it. Um, we'll keep with us for a couple more weeks. In an encyclical, 
the, the Pope is writing from his chair, it could be in the privacy of a room, and he publishes it to everybody. In a classroom, you're in a very different setting. Donald Cowan, who was the president of UD, just before I got there, he and Louise were the ones who came to my apartment every night when I finished my PhD and they went through every line of my dissertation, sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence. You don't think that was an education in writing. Um, another time I'll tell you something that Donald Cowan said that has left its mark on me forever. But in one of his writings, Donald Cowan said that the classroom was a sacred space. You closed the doors you know, to keep the world out so you can learn. I don't know how to put this. I want to offer a kind um, qualification of Donald Callan's true remark, you know, that the classroom is a kind of sacred space. Remember that the John Paul begins his encyclical calling to Mike Socrates and that 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 model is tonight or to put it the importance of self, to know yourself, one of the most important things is to know thyself. And you know that Socrates is going to take that into the world to the Agora, Agora, the marketplace. And he, he will be tried and killed. And John Paul was admitting that when he says, very often the commitment to philosophy um, implies a death. So even while the classroom may have a sacred quality, I would say, that very often those walls get transparent. And what, what goes on in the classroom uh, goes beyond, and very often it bounces back. Um, so a couple of things to say here at the opening. This is not an encyclical. It's a, it's a pope or, you know, recalling a time in the university when he loved learning and he used to go to colleagues. He's returning there and saying, what fond memories I have, okay? So we're in an academic setting. This is not an encyclical. It's Benedict um, calling to mind one of the great problems that we face in the modern world. I'm going I'm to call him Brave Benedict the Brave. I'm, I'm not. I, I cannot say enough for this. What this man did. He went to a university and he spoke to a world about a world problem, and he addressed two world religions fundamentalism in Islam. In the kindest words that anybody could use, he is as indirect as anybody could be. He said there was a problem. The response of the world at large called him out. I mean, they have all these nasty things to say about it. It just, all it does is call to mind again the great courage that this man showed in doing what he did as kindly as he did. But he's calling us He's asking us to be aware of a major problem, okay? He says in the second paragraph of his address, you don't have to have it. If you have it, you can go along, but I, I want to go back to the beginning next week when we pick it up again, but tonight I just want to get to this point that planted in everybody's head. I was reminded of all this recently when I read the edition of Professor Theodore Khoury's of, of Part of the dialogue carried on, this is in 1391, in the winter barracks near Ankara, when the Islamic forces were attacking um, Constantinople. 
So the, Christ, the Christian center of the world was under attack by Islamic forces. And the emperor at that time was engaged in a discussion with um, an Islamic um, thinker um, on a deeper question. A war was going on. In fact, Constantinople was going to fall, and some mark that as the beginning of the modern era, when that, when that city goes. The dialogue ranges widely over the structures of faith contained in the Bible and the Koran and deals especially with the image of God and of man while necessarily returning repeatedly to the relationship between, as they were called then, three laws or rules of life. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Koran. So three holy scriptures, three sacred scriptures, are offering what seem to be three very distinct ways of life. The people, they, they take them as their guide. That's how important they are. It's not my intention to discuss this question, he says. I'd like to discuss only one part, and he goes to this. In the seventh conversation, he says, the emperor touches on the theme of a holy war. The emperor must have known that Surah, it's a section of the Quran, says, there is no compulsion in religion, according to some of the experts, this is probably one of the surahs, it's a section, of the early period when Muhammad was still powerless and under threat. But naturally the emperor also knew the instructions developed later and recorded in the Quran concerning holy war. Without descending to detail, listen to his tone in all of this, listen to his tone. Without descending to details such as the difference in treatment according to those who have the book and the infidels, because infidels are those who don't share the beliefs of the Quran, Christians, other Jews. Um, according to those who have the book and the infidels, he addressed his interlocutor with a startling briskness, a briskness that we find unacceptable. Benedict saying, I don't, he, he did not approve of the tone with which this dialogue went on with the emperor. I mean, you can't be kinder than that. Saying, I, if he were going to do something like that, he would have brought a different spirit to it. Um, a brustness that we find unacceptable on a central question about the relationship between religion and violence in general, saying, show me just what Muhammad brought that was new and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. So there are sections, if you've ever read the Quran, you know there are sections in the Quran that um, encourage a war um, in order to answer the infidels. Spread the word of God. Violence is, he goes on, violence is incompatible with the nature of God and the nature of the soul. God, he says, is not pleased by blood and not acting reasonably, sum logo in Greek, according to logo, is contrary to God's nature. Faith is born of the soul, not the body. Whoever would lead someone to faith needs the ability to speak well and reason properly. I hope everybody's hearing me. We've been talking about how in the world do we um, evangelize What's the spirit with which we take this out to the world? Benedict's right now giving us a model of how to do this. Faith is born to the soul, not the body. Whoever would lead someone to faith needs the ability to speak well and to reason properly without violence and threats. To convince a reasonable soul, one does not need a strong arm or weapons of any kind or any other means of threatening a person with death. 
I mean, obviously this is a criticism of the Quran and the Islamic faith. Go down, if you've got my copy, I put it in color-coded just a bit. At this point, as far as understanding of God, unless the concrete practice of religion is concerned, we are faced with an unavoidable dilemma. Is the conviction that acting unreasonably, our focus has been reason in this, our meetings, is the conviction that acting unreasonably contradicts God's nature merely a Greek idea, this idea of the Logos, or is it always intrinsically true? One of the reasons that John Paul said we cannot lose that Greek Roman heritage is because we got from that Hellenic world this notion of universal truth, the Logos, the Word, long before Christ ever came into the world. Philosophically, in terms of reason, we could make arguments for the presence of that Logos everywhere in creation. And he's saying right now, it's gone. We're living in a world without that. What happened? Take what it does as you say. Take God out of the picture. Everything's permissible. Is the conviction that acting unreasonably contradicts God's nature merely a Greek idea, or is it always an intrinsically true? That is, did the Greeks come to it? This is your question. Did the Greeks come to it? because it was objective, or was it something purely subjective and cultural? Was it a piece of historicism? Going to it right? Historicism means all things are culturally or historically conditioned, so once that history period is passed, it's... What is Greek in the best sense of the word and the biblical understanding of the faith of God? Modifying the first verse of the book in Genesis, the first verse of the um, Bible, John began the prologue, he goes on, in the beginning was the Logos. I want to go back to the paragraph just before at the end. He's talking about this man who's quoting this dialogue that took place between the emperor and this Islamic philosopher. Here, Quig quotes a work of the noted French Islam Islamist Ar Arnavis, who points out that Ibn Qasim went so far as to state this is a fundamental belief of the Islamic faith. He went so far as to state that God is not bound even by his own word. If that were true, is everybody following? This is really, it's going to the point of everything we've been doing. God is not bound by his own word. Then what would be the point of, of Yahweh coming to Moses and saying, here are these laws. These are my commandments. This is my word, my law to you. And when the people ask you who said that, you tell them, you said, I am, said it. He is being itself. He is eternal, he's unchanging, he just gave his word. Ibn Hazm went so far as to say that God is not bound even by his own word and that nothing would oblige him to reveal the truth to us. Whatever he says one day, he could change the next. If God gave the Ten Commandments, he could have undone them the next week. Now hold on to this, because this is central to this whole concern with reason that we've been working with now for a month or so. Were it not God's will, we would even have to practice idolatry. And you know that the Islamic world condemns idolatry. It, it doesn't, it's uncomfortable with images, pictures, because they think it's a threat to God's will. But if God condemns it one moment, he could undo it the next, and we could too. Because if his will is changing, and we're following him, so could we. Is everybody following? What's that issue here 
in, in what Benedict is doing, sorry, is the difference between
whatever they want, they will find a reason for making it so. If, if Christ is bad, kill him. This was bad, this was bad, this was bad, this was bad. They made it so in their minds. Did he ever do anything that was bad? No. Their will was making it so. Did they read well? Were they good readers? Let me put it that way. Did they read well? Did they see the logos, the good of God's divinity in front of them in a human form, what he was doing? No. We've been talking about the major things we've spent in front of us. How well did we read? And you know my stand on that is we think we're all educated. We think we're all great readers. We're awful readers. Learning to read. Well, I'm not kidding. You know, we send our kids to school. Suzanne's reached the point where she, she's made all of her grandchildren, she made it clear. And this is a woman who grew up valuing education almost more than any. So maybe one person. <laughs> <laughs> I should not do that. Um, she loved education, so did I. She's saying to her grandchildren, or she's saying to our own children, do not let your children go to school. Do not send them to college. Um, anyway, you see the point here. There's two radically different points of view with regard to this matter of faith. In one of them, the logos is central, it's principle, the word, God's law, reason. Science and theology, religion, should not be at odds. Not at all. Because the source of all science is God's reason. It's a logos present everywhere. Otherwise, how could the science in a university, university means all of them are united, university. Right? It's, it's university. The, the word unity, university. If they don't have a common understanding of a logos, a center, that everything's intelligible, how could they talk with each other? And yet that's what's going on in the modern world. They're not even talking to each other anymore. The whole point of this dialogue is all these men used to come together from different fields to engage in these colloquia. Because even though they were different fields and they had to struggle with it, they were united by a belief in a logos. What happens when you take that away? How do men from different fields communicate with each other when they don't even acknowledge there's an intelligibility in everything they're doing? Take away the notion of the logos, you've just got willful people from disciplines pushing at each other. That's what's going on at schools. So it's an issue here that's fundamental to our lives. Okay? So Benedict's concern in the Reagan person address is just picking up something John Paul was. It's what's happened to our reason because of the importance reason has for our faith. How important it is, okay? Take away the logos. By what means do we enter into a discussion with anybody? How can we even begin to hope that we can reconcile some or find Okay? So let me stop there. That's, I just wanted to introduce this. We'll pick it up next time. I want to get to this sexual question, but let me stop. I, I don't want to go into this at length, but any brief questions? You can't ask them. <laughs> no brief ones. <laughs> any, any, any brief questions on... Or any comments, any just brief observations about what Benedict is doing and why it's so important. It's really wonderful, you know, what we're, I think what we're doing, and we're putting together John Paul and Regensburg. They're, I mean, two of the popes in our lifetime, and both of them are looking at pretty serious problems, and both of them are responding to attacks against Christ. 
the truth, the way, the light. Philosophy and theology have gone to somehow make a place for the Bible. Faith and reason have gone to come together. How do we how do we evangelize if we don't take a joy? We don't take a joy in it, really. And love truth. We want to grasp it, be able to bring light you know, to our discussions with each other. Let me stop. Any any comments or brief questions? We're gonna go to the sex problem here, because I, I I know a lot of you were really upset you know, last week. Yeah, Mary. I just want to say that in reading these two works, it really gave me maybe ammunition. Say it again, ammunition? Maybe ammunition. Oh, ammunition. Yeah, sir. Throw at people? Yeah. You shouldn't have any trouble with that anyway, Mary. <laughs> to see that uh, they pull all to these great philosophers together from all the traditions and have these same truths are really been there all along. Yep. Yeah, and just like Paul mentioned when he went to Athens and he saw all the, the dots, yes, yes. you know, and yes. said, you know, he told the people, even you see it. So Yes. It, really helps me to see that this is really reasonable. I'm so glad, yeah. yeah. Anything to do to get you more reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop this. I've got to make a resolution to stop. Sorry. Suzanne's making faces. Sorry. Oh. Let you go on. Let you not stop. Okay. We'll take up the sex question unless anybody's got another comment anybody would like to make or Bob, you and Karen have something? Say, say, can you say a little? He just was asking what he didn't hear what you said. Oh, not missing anything yet. <laughs> okay, let's let's go to that question, okay? The question, wait, and I want to, um, Michael's been reminding me for two weeks wanted me to include um, this disorder and ask me why I should have included it. He's been on me for two weeks and I haven't been here, but he said, what about nominalism? At some point, I mean, Thomas, there wasn't anything he didn't turn his mind to, but 
he has a, a treatise on the Trinity. And St. Augustine has a book on the Trinity, uh, Boethius wrote a commentary on the Trinity. All of those men used their powers of reason to make clear aspects of the Trinity. I gave you that passage from the Trinity from St. Thomas saying, remember, one is not less than two, and two is not greater than one in the Trinity, they're all one because they share a nature. That's just an argument, it's a rational explanation of some aspect of the Trinity. Because the Trinity is not corporeal, it's not physical, it's immaterial, it's not bound by a body. Um, so the great conflict in the Middle Ages was between nominalists, these were all Catholic theologians, and realists. And the nominalists were saying there are no universals, they're just names, just names. Every disorder that we looked at the last few weeks rests on a nominalistic world. There are no universals. Relativism, historicism, material. Take them all. There's not a one of them that isn't, that isn't nominalist in its character. So a nominalist would say there are no universals. And let me just give you the simple answer. I just do not want to go into this time. I want to get to this sexual thing. They would say there the only things that are real are the, are the individual things outside of the line. So there's Michael, there's Heather, there's Connie, and you know, all of us. There's only individuals, there are no universals. Because what's real is what's real to our senses. And what's real to our senses is individual things. Universals are only names. The simple answer to that is, um, if all trees are only individual trees, how can we call them trees? I hope that's clear. If all chairs are different because everyone's a particular chair, then why do we call them chairs? Every single particular thing in the world shares an essence with another thing. If all trees are different, why in the world do we call them trees? Because there's an essence. A tree is a tree unlike a lion, a flower, a human being. I'm sure there are times when Suzanne would look at me, say, stick in the mud, or, you know. But, um, <laughs> I'll stop. Is everybody following? Nominalism means there's no universals. If that's true, there's no justice, there's no truth, there's no trinity. Universals don't exist. The only things, those, those, the nominals of claim are only real things in your head as ideas. They have no reality outside themselves. Aristotle would say, rightly, Boethius and Thomas would follow him, Augustine in some ways, but certainly Aristotle and Thomas and Boethius say, the only things that exist outside of our mind are individuals. But there is an essence to things. Universals do exist. And um, there are universals. I don't go into them right now. Potency or God's being, the Trinity. Those can't be bounded by particulars. They are universal in their nature. Um, so the, the nonetheless is saying um, those things have no reality, they're only ideas in our heads. 
The only things that are real are those individual things outside of our minds. Because the only things that exist outside of our minds are individual things. But I hope you heard my answer. You know, if all trees are individual, then what can we call them? Because they share an essence. There is an essence. It's not just in our heads. They're there in trees, or we couldn't call them trees. Each individual tree would be something else. Is that clear? That's the art, that's the answer to a nonsense. Okay? So every one of the disorders we've been looking at imply a nonsense way of looking at the world. There are no universals. Eclecticism, relativism, historicism. Every one of them. You can see that now. Just go down the line. I want to get back to that question. Or we may have to carry it over again. Um, the, the question that, if I remember, if I can put it that way, the question that I posed is that problems having to do with our sexual nature are pretty serious today. And one of the, I'll give one of the reasons, I think, is because sexuality is this mysterious thing. Um, we are sexual by nature. Priests renounce sex. That's a pretty heavy thing. Women who go into orders renounce it. They, they take a vow of chastity. Those in marriages don't. Um, but it's a serious thing. And one of the reasons it's serious is because it's the one means by which we enter into a creative activity with God. We can bring life into the world. That's an extraordinary thing. It also goes to fundamental differences between in the world that the modern world does not want to recognize. A woman has a womb. There's, there are fundamental differences in biology between a man and a woman. All men and women have intellects. They all have wills. We share that in common. But a woman has a womb. A man cannot... I don't know what I mean. I'm, I, maybe someday science will construct something in a man the way that... I don't know. But, but by nature, a woman has a womb. She can bring life into the world. A man tends to do that in his head. Sometimes you wish you didn't, but um, but the, the creative act is one of the ways in which we participate in creation of God. So there's a dual aspect to our sexuality, the pleasure that it gives, which is not small, and this creative aspect. Take those out of the sexual relationship, what happens? So my question last week was, since it's become such a problem, and I'm, I'm suggesting that almost every one of the disorders that we're looking at in the modern world represent an attack, constitute an attack on marriage. Divorce, contraceptions, abortion, same-sex marriages, every single one of them is doing away with marriage, particularly as it's described in the Bible. Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, ends with Christ saying to the church, the bride, come, come, and the bride is saying, come. It's an expression of a spousal relationship between Christ and His Church. Our understanding of the relationship, even if we didn't enter into it when we began, is it spousal. We share it with Christ. So it has a quality that is lost to the modern world. Okay? So when we're, when we're talking with somebody who's in a same-sex marriage or who's defending this, and here's where I left it, and that person says, who are you to tell me how to love? I love this person. Don't tell me you love your spouse 
more than I love this person. My question to everybody was, what do you say? That's where we love God. That's where I saw a real animus. Does everybody follow me? You're talking with somebody about sexual relationships. God. It's one of the most intense things because it's so personal. The others are abstract. You know, they, is this on you? The others are abstract. When you get to sex, you're dealing with intimacies, close things, things deep in our psyche. And somebody in a in a um, an illicit relationship, in a, um, a, um, a relationship between man, before marriage, or which goes on a lot today, or an illicit relationship according to the church, or homosexual, or any of those, and they say we love each other. I want to do this as much justice, and I'd like to try to keep it in the spirit in which I've been saying. You know, that Benedict was objecting to the spirit of the emperor. What do you say? Who, who are you to tell me how to love? Okay, that's where we left off. So, what, how would you answer? Go ahead. Can you speak up, sorry? Yeah. Can everybody hear? Can you hear? Can't hear, can you, sorry, can you speak up? I don't want an assertion. I want an argument. 
How do you use reason to answer that person if that person says it? But what we have is an agape love, this unconditional love, this willingness to stand. What, what do you say then? But that's not how God, well, first they're going to say, well, I'm God. What? <laughs> they're going to say, I don't believe in God. Because I would start, well, that's not how God intended things to be. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not natural. You cannot help in the creation of the world. I mean, if we come to the point to where it's, you know, uh, no more marriages, no more babies, I mean, you know, the world's just going to stop. stop. <laughs> right. Right. And what about our bodies? Our bodies are not even our own. I can tell them that. In, well, in 1 yeah. Corinthians 6, 19, it says, you know, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. We were bought for a price. Do you love God? I mean, do you know Jesus? What about them? What about that? Okay. And I'm so glad. Oh, sorry, God. I have to really be careful here. Sorry. Um, what if somebody, Connie, really, what if, what if somebody, Connie was talking to somebody right now, and they said, don't bring God into this right now. What then? I mean, let's leave about this for a moment. So here, if I can, so what we're trying to do is keep this at a level of reason. Um, I mean, I, and I don't want to leave God entirely out of it because at some point, but is there is there any way to answer still? I'm trying to press this as hard as I can, and I may be trying to press it too far, but go ahead. Wait, can you hear? Oh, yeah, Sorry, can you speak? The, the creative aspect, how uh, that, that's the purpose of sex is to create other uh, humans. Uh, so you're eliminating that. So why is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, that's not that. Yeah, good question. Wow. So you're even saying that is really good. Bob, did you have something yeah, to do? How, how, can, how did you even arrive here? I mean, how did you, let's say both women or both men, how did you arrive here? Your love and our love, we can reproduce. You can not reproduce, but you can, now you can again, just like, you can have a child by adoption, yeah. and you can take care of that child. Yeah. But you still can never reproduce. Yeah. So that's right. the main difference. Yeah, that's a good point. How did you get here? I mean, it's a really good point. Hey, Karen, go ahead. Here, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you... I, I have something. Wait one second, yeah, hold on, because she's got... Wait, I just want to pick that up. What of Plato's arguments in the Republic? It's really because most of these people... Is, I, I'm, there's, I think there's a native Platonism in all of us to live in ideas. And one of the arguments that Plato makes is that... Um, um, that one of the most important things good rulers can do... And let, let me say that widely for anybody, is that he can conceive of good things in his head. So it, it will be important for him to be able to conceive things that will be eternal, that this is Plato City, because they, they're more truthful, they're more good than other things. That's one of the arguments that Socrates actually goes to the 
wood that I was giving him a while ago. So then he would say, like some of these people would say, we don't want a child. Uh, what's more important for us is our social function. Um, we want to we want to contribute to our social world, and we believe we can bring a better. Here, I'm going to push this now. We believe we can be a better world, more tolerant than the one that you're insisting on. We don't want children. It's not our love doesn't depend on having children. Our love is higher than that. Our our concern socially, politically, is we want to create a better world. And we want to get past in the intolerance of people like you who think that anybody who doesn't marry that way is wrong. So implicit in that is you're bigoted, you're, you know, so, but, to see, yeah. Um, I was, you know, I understand what we're saying here, but there are also heterosexual couples that cannot conceive children, you know? And then, what do you say to them? I mean, these people still love each other, they stay together, but they didn't get, you know, blessed with God, and they couldn't have children. Um, I think the answer to that is a little bit easier. Bucket. Yeah. You cannot put them in the same bucket. You know? Right. And, and, yeah. And what's the answer to that? Yeah. That wasn't where I was coming. <laughs> Wait. Then let me let me try to take because when a couple like that enters into marriage, they didn't know in advance they couldn't have children. So um, that choice was taken away from them. Whereas in the one, I think Karen's or Mary, is that people enter into a marriage not wanting children, denying it, and saying we actually have a more elevated motive. That our our motive is political, social. We want to get rid of these intolerances and have a better world. So I'm wrestling with that, and I'm trying to push these things at you guys. So what do you, somebody else had a hand up? Answer here. Necessity. Yeah, yours, right. yours may be better for a time, but it's going to end. It's just like China when they went to the one deal, one child, their, their production and their growth, their everything stalled. Same with Japan. Japan's it's pretty much the same way. They cut back on their reproduction. Right. Then their world and economics and everything else is starting to fall apart because of that. So now if you Yeah, if I can pick up that same thought, Bob, because both of the points you made to me are really going to go right to the point. The other, the other one was you're here. You know, uh, how'd you get here? Now you're saying, sorry, if I can, um, um, if I can put it this way, there's a difference between an ideal in the mind, in your head, and having an actual body, being here. So when you can celebrate an idea in your head, you can say, we don't want you, we don't need them, we're trying to create a better world. But at least one of the differences between the two of them, both of your comments have gone to it is, but we're also talking about an actual physical world. And in, in, so, in one, in one, so you've got two people. In one, what's most important is an idea in your head. It's immaterial, it has no body. Although they want to get it to it, they want to have a better political world, you know, we want to get rid of intolerance. And, but the other, you're implicitly saying the body is a really good thing. The, one of the things that distinguishes humans from angels or animals is, you know, we have a body, we have a mind. So one of them, in a sense, celebrates our corporeal nature. 
We're saying there's something amazing about human beings and our ability to be here, to create, um, to not just live in our heads, because if you live in our heads at some point, you don't exist. It, it stops at some point. But somebody else had it. Sorry. Anne, go ahead. It, that was very much where I was going with it. We, you have to go back to our nature. And if you look at every culture, every civilization from the beginning of time, you have a man and a woman who are joined together, who have children, and their being together helps them to protect and nurture that child, and we nurture our society through raising these children. Yeah. And there, so I would question, you know, why, why has it always been that way? You know, it's not like all of a sudden we figured out something better. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you know, just a side comment to what you said, because I believe in it, I mean, I really do. It's, but if you look at what's going on with our children today, you have to say, if what you say is true, we haven't done a very good job of nurturing our children. So, but here, I, 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 I want to, I want to, I want to, we've got, I'm, I'm trying to hold myself to time. I want to put this, I want to, I'm going to, I need to ratchet it up a notch. I'm going to tighten things up. Go ahead, go ahead.
Um, One of the things you can't miss when you look at the world is um, how disordered loves are. We, we watched a movie the other night, Suzanne and I, called um, Death on the Nile. It was an Agatha Christie novel, and it was showing that love leads people to do all these bad things. So, I mean, one of the obvious answers when somebody says, we love each other, the assumption behind that statement is love is never wrong. I mean, all of us have done this. I, I, so, those of you who've been with us, we did Dante. The, the, at the center of Dante's Divine Comedy, the absolute center, held beginning and, and ending at the end, was Virgil's discourse on love. And in that discourse, he said, natural love, natural, because that's our, certainly as Catholics, Protestants don't believe that. They believe natural love is corrupted. Virgil, he's a pagan. This is Dante, I mean, Dante's the writer who's putting in Virgil's mouth, but he said, natural love is never wrong. It's what we begin to do with love with our heads that makes it wrong. Think about all the wrong things that are done in the name of love. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could ask any of you right now to take 30 seconds and you would immediately come up with 10 things and they'd all be different. If you look around at the world, the one thing you cannot miss is the way love causes people to do bad things. Drugs, drinking, sex, adultery, name it. And it could be within a marriage. I mean, the fact that people are married doesn't mean their sexual life is going to be ordinate. It means they've got to learn to struggle, all of us. And I'm saying this from personal experience. We enter into a marriage and we've got to learn to, to love the right way. Um, that's why that I quoted that passage from Plato. If we don't crucify ourselves, there's going to be something in a self-righteous saying, I'm right, I'm good, I love the right way. And there's always going to be something buried. Christ took that away from us. I hope I'm not talking too fast. In the in Scarlet, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, one of the things we learned from Scarlet Letter is all these Christians are pointing their finger at Esther, who's got an A for adultery on her breast, self-righteously condemning her. They're acting as if they don't have any sins, that they're saved. The responsibility for us is to, we, whatever we do with other people, we have to carry some sense of our sinfulness. So if you look around at the world, you're going to find nothing but disordered loves. Greed, gambling, name it. Because the problem is learning to order our loves. Here's St. Augustine. But this is John Paul. Once reason successfully intuits and formulates the first universal principle of being, I end and end, and correctly draws from the conclusions which are coherent, coherent both logically and ethically, we're not just willful, we're not being willful with each other. You know, do this because I said so, or because I feel it. Um, conclusions which are coherent both logically and ethically, then it may be called right reason, as the ancient called it, or orthos logos, repta ratio. St. Augustine's word was ordo, ordinate emotions. Here, John Paul's called or, orthos logos, rectus, recta ratio, right reason. 
because we know that, the, listen to the political debates. I mean, the last thing you can say of most of those people is that they're using reason well. They've got assertive, aggressive wills, and they're using reason to justify their wills. How many are using reason in a virtuous way, whose, whose wills are well-disposed, virtuous? Because if you're, so take Thomas, Boethius, Augustine, all of them say, one of the, the greatest tasks of faith is learning to correct our wills because it's in our wills that we love. How good are our wills? Are we virtuous? Do we bring virtue to the way we use reason? Right reason implies a good disposition of the will. Augustine's term, ordinate emotions, kind of reluctant to, everybody remember that ordinate? Lawful emotions. Okay, so here's my question. People are saying, I love this person. Yeah? I mean, the obvious answer is, love in itself isn't good. I mean, love in itself is good, that's our belief. But it entails lots of disordered emotions. How do we, so how do we make them ordinate? So the question, is everybody following me? So it's a, a rational argument, I love. I mean, the assumption is, Love is good, it's never wrong. My answer is look around at the world and you find love largely is not good. It's, it leads to all these disorders. It may be inherently good, but look at what we do with it. Particularly with our education. Look at all the disorders. They're all, they're all intellectual. Anyway, so the question becomes how do we make our loves ordinate? How do we make our loves an agape love? So the question becomes if if the problem is making our laws ordinate, lawful, what laws do we obey? Then you're going to another level of argument. Are all laws good? Was the law supporting slavery good? If you go historically, you know, look at every culture, you find laws that are in the book that are not inherently good. There were laws supporting um, slavery. You could argue, you could question, I'm trying to keep this at a level, you can question somebody and say, is abortion good? We've got laws on the books today supporting abortion. We have laws supporting slavery sometimes. Are we going to reach a point where we discover that the laws supporting abortion are not good? So this question about laws then, if, if you start with a love and you say, but we've got to make our loves good or lawful, what laws do we follow? Are all human laws, positive laws, keep that scheme I gave you close to you. Are, are all laws good? No, they're not. We know that. And the question then becomes, do the laws that we put on the book conform to something more universal? So, remember I gave you the example in Antigone. Sophocles Antigone. He's a pagan. Antigone is opposing Creon, the leader. She wants to bury her brother. Creon says, no, you're not going to bury him within the city because he opposed the city. And she made an appeal. This is before Christ. She made an appeal to an eternal law. So even before Christ, there's what we come to know as natural law. These laws that are universally true for all of them. And then the question becomes, so you say you love well, and they, they seriously, they do. They're not trying to deliberately be evil, these people. 
I'm going to give an example that's going to get away in a minute. So, do the laws that we obey, are they in accord with the natural law, something universal? And finally, are they, I mean, if you want to bring God into it, are they in accord with God's law? Now, you know I've been pushing this for as long as we've been together. One of the things that's most upsetting to me about the modern world is, is its tendency to separate law and love, mercy and justice. And I've been saying from the beginning, Christ did not do that. He said, I did not come to abolish the law. He was God's son. God put down those laws. Would Christ do anything to disobey his father? No. He fulfilled them with a divine love beyond anything humans could do and asked us to follow. So we're asked to bring a divine love, a caritas, an agape love, which means sacrificing ourselves for another, particularly when it's an enemy. How well do we do that? Now, here's where I'm rushing it up, and I'm going to call it into it, so you have to think about this again for the next week. What do you do? Let's say that's somebody in your own family. Now I'm going to really, and I'm, I'm, I'm right now I'm going to ask nobody to answer. I'm going to ask these questions. We're going to pick up here next week. What do you do when it's in your own family? We have, um, I know the deacon who was invited to a wedding of his own children, one of whom was, they were, was a homosexual, same-sex marriage. He did not go because he believed that in going he would be indirectly giving approval for the marriage. So here's my question. If we're meant to call law and love together, because the modern world says, we want to get rid of this intolerance of yours. And I, I'm, I'm going to bracket this for a minute. So the modern world we're stepping into is more tolerant than our own. These people who say you're intolerant, we, we are more tolerant. Think about the whole cancel culture. Okay. Um, the deacon wouldn't go. What would have been the attitude of anybody present in that ceremony or his own children looking at him as a father? That's one example I can think of. We know a couple in our community who had a homosexual child and married and invited their parents to marry. They did not go. Same thing. I hope you're all following. So they're trying to um, obey the law and still love their children. Because you know the easiest thing to do would have been to go to those marriages and act as if everything were okay. So is it holding law and love together? How do we do that? Is, and I don't want an answer. This is ratcheting it up. We have a friend, a dear, dear friend, um, whom I taught with a hundred years ago. Very involved in putting together an institute, a Catholic Orthodox Institute, because the university he taught at was going left-wing liberal, liberation theology, and the Jesuits who came in, and I don't want to go into it, but two of the most active members in that Catholic institution, you know, they were um, closely involved for years as a group. Two of them traded marriages. The two couples traded spouses. And the leader of that group said to both of them, these are people who have been dear friends, committed Catholic, fighting the same battle. Hold on to that. They're fighting the world together. They're unified on a battle. They're taking bullets on a battlefield. And suddenly, they're at a point where they say to the two people who have been the dearest 
different. And the coverage is a war. Sorry to say this, but you're not welcome in our home anymore. Okay, and that's, now I'm going to get personal. I've not done this, I mean, I've done it with friends, but Suzanne and I lived together for eight years before we were married. Um, <laughs> um, I don't want to go into the personal reasons. Um, in my childhood, I just, marriage was, how do I say this? I believe that marriage was something more than I experienced as a boy growing up. So my response was, I'm not going to get married until I know. Marriage, you can't be broken up. It, it can't be based on a piece of paper. This was that noble, you know, taking a stand. We, were, we lived together. Suzanne's mother came to us one night and said, um, she was a Quaker. I mean, Suzanne grew up Protestant and sort of respectable. What religion was really much of it. She, she had a strong faith, but it, it wasn't a part of the family. And you all know I came from a Greek Orthodox and we brought two faces together. But, um, her mother came to us one day and said, um, I can't visit your home because we were living in a cottage in California, um, in Berkeley. Not a part of that movement at all. I, mean, I was too a part of it, she was a part of it. That was not what was going on. Um, but she said, um, I can't come to your house anymore. You're welcome at my house. You're welcome at my house. But I can't come here because you're not here. It was her way of trying to hold a line um, and still love us. Are you all following? What do we do in our own families with our spouses? Let's say a husband gambles or whatever it is. You know, whatever it is. Where do we go? How do we... Because lots of couples have... You know, there are disorders in every one of our families, I'm assuming, for all of us, if we're honest. What do we do? How do we obey the law and still love an agape love? Um, um, what's the other word, the agape love? A care does. A Christ-like love that asks you to completely sacrifice yourself for another. Because lots of people when they're in couples, when they're facing a disorder and their other one, will that's it. It's why the church is so important because the church has to mitigate. And the church is a, I mean, church is faced, I think, with an awful job in that respect. How in the world do you mitigate between a couple? Because it's too deep. But it does. The advantage is that it's not just your own will, you know, your Churches involved because because the assumption you've got married with Christ, you have to have Christ whatever you're doing. So here's my question, and I don't want an answer because I've already gone 15 minutes and I've been down. So what do we do when it's somebody we love? And let's just keep it. Let's leave gambling and drinking it. It's homosexual love, where somebody can say the love that we have between each other is good. It's an agape love, it's caritas. I would give up my life for this person. What do we say? And I don't want an answer. What I'd like to do is leave. What do we do to hold on to a law and still love? How do we do that? I would be grateful if anybody had the courage to do that. I don't want this to be a confessional or a therapy, but I, I still like, truly, I'd like to keep this, you know, distant and impersonal, but still, tackle our problems because it's our age. I, I don't know I don't know an age historically in which people have done what we're doing today. 
So it's and it's it's as deep as it is because it goes to these root problems. It's, it goes to creation, bringing somebody into the world. Is that clear? Is, is that have I laid that out clear enough? I hope I'm giving you an argument. When somebody says we love each other, the assumption is love by itself is okay. Our Catholic belief is natural love is never wrong. It's good. But what we do with that natural love is often bad. We're going back to Dante, we're going back to Boethius, these are the people we've read. Natural love is, is never wrong. I gave you that one example from Dostoevsky with Raskolnikov when he uses the axe to kill this woman. He goes in to kill this pawnbroker, he uses a dullage. The, this Lisa this insane woman comes in, he turns it and uses the dull catch. That's an instinctive act. Or he used the dull edge with the one uh, he used the sharp edge with the other. It was like an act of mercy. There's something instinctively good in every one of us. We are not Protestants. There's something instinctively good. But what do we do with those loves? The way we live? What do we do with our own lives? How do we respond to people whom we love, who are caught up with these things. Our grandchildren are going to be facing it. Our children are. See, that's my question, okay? So they say, we love each other. How do you sit down and have a discussion? Okay, where do you go? That's, we will pick this up again next week, and we will finish it, and Begin in, begin in earnest to look at Regensburg Address. I'm sorry for going so late to that. So. Okay, so next week we'll bring the map. So the witch? The map, the oh, the map? I don't know. Put it down over the cords. Did you find any?